You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome into the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball, as uh, we near the end of the first half of the Minor League season. Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra, Benjamin Hill, guys, it's good to see you. I uh, unfortunately missed our interview segment today, which is coming up here in a little bit, but uh, it's good to see your smiling faces nonetheless. Neither of you is currently smiling. I don't know why I said that. How are you? <laughs> we could have lied about that. We could have said we always smile. When we, we could have. You see your face, Tyler. We could have. The looks of despondency when I pop up onto the Zoom are very pronounced. Sam, by the way, looks like a complete stranger today. He got a, he's like that episode of The Office where Jim gets the haircut to go for the job interview at corporate. That's Sam today. He shaved and he has a new haircut. And I don't recognize anything about him. Well, I can confirm that I've not had any interviews at any other places. Hey, not big haircut. Okay. So it wasn't, you weren't going for a, a corporate position at a, at a paper supply company. No. Okay. No, I, well, I, I am not. Uh, literally just first week of summer. What the heck? Uh, okay. Decided it was time. I, I have not been clean shaven. I don't know the last time. I was yeah, a long time. Yeah. It's been a while. But I already don't like it. So I'm trying to <laughs> cheat a pet my way back to having a beard as quickly as possible. You're going to paint beard grower all over your face. So well, I've just been like puffing out my face like a puffer fish, just hoping it just pops out <laughs> on its own. Trying to force it through. Yeah, Um, that's how science works. Well, a resplendently bearded and haired Benjamin Hill is to your left. Uh, Hello, Ben. Hello, Tyler. And and yeah, you know, going back to this important topic of Sam's haircuts, I remember years ago, and I don't know if this is the case. I just want you to confirm or deny that you were getting your haircuts for the cheapest haircuts (laughs) I think that one could get. That's right. I forgot about this. You had a spot in Chinatown that I believe was $5. Do you still go there? What a callback. Actually, I think it was $4. $4 haircuts in 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 New York City in in the 21st century. Um, No, I have not gone back there uh, for a while just because I found a place in my neighborhood that cuts hair for (laughs) much, much more than $5, but uh, is still reasonably priced. And it's good to be supporting local and neighborhood businesses. So I've I've chosen the one I can walk to instead of taking the F train to Chinatown just so I can save, let's say, twenty dollars. <laughs> I uh, I recently went to a, a barber shop and I got a beard trim, and it was it was delightful. It's uh, my beard is like a little, you know, for those who don't know, I do some TV work. So like during the fall and the winter, I try to keep it like relatively kempt. It is very much unkempt at the moment. And I had to go to a wedding a couple of weeks ago. So I went and got like a professional beard trim. It was delightful. This is uh, a weekly edition of making mad that one guy who commented uh, on our iTunes ratings that we don't talk baseball enough. Um, So we're going to do a 10 minute breakdown of facial hair and things to lead into this month's episode of the show before the show. And I think it's great Uh, to all of you tuning in. Huge thanks for joining us. You can get in touch with the podcast, podcast at MILB.com. We have actually gotten uh, some emails that we need to go through today uh, to discuss some phenomenal longtime listeners. But before we get into all of that, we need to give some space for the uh, discussion of a major controversy. Uh, The floor is yours, Benjamin Hill. Yeah, well, I believe we talked, obviously, I was on a New England road trip recently, and we've talked about uh, 
you know, some of the material that has come out of that. And we'll talk more about it today because there's even more new uh, material. But last week I wrote a story on Slugger, the mascot for the Portland Sea Dogs. And, you know, he's a really great mascot, does really creative uh, skits between innings, has, uh, you know, gone viral uh, with a lot of those skits and really made a name for himself beyond the confines of Southern Maine. And in the story, I referred to Slugger as an anthropomorphic canine. And that was up for a couple of days and no one corrected it, uh, not the team or anyone else. Uh, but then someone appeared on Twitter days after the story came on and said, well, hey, you know, great story. Glad you enjoyed your visit. But uh, Slugger is not a canine. He is a seal. And I was like, what? He just looks so much like a dog. And no, he one does very this. much look dog like. And the team but is called the sea, sea dog. dogs. So I get that. Yeah. yeah, I get the confusion. Yeah, so a sea dog is apparently a seal, and then we looked it up, and his mascot bio says he, you know, bats and throws with his right flipper. We checked in with uh, Maine resident and Maine expert and sea dogs expert Josh Jackson, who said, "Oh yeah, he's a harbor seal who I believe, you know, was born or spent, you know, his formative years in the Casco Bay." And uh, I just did not know that this mascot was a seal. And then Josh Jackson also said that, oh, and unprompted said Sam Dykstra. You know, contrary to Sam Dykstra's opinion, who believes he is a dog. I love and I that Sam got that. roped into this for no reason. I don't remember having such a strong opinion on this, but now I will. Like, I will I will take the Bostonian in me and just be like, oh, <laughs> I didn't feel strongly about this two seconds ago, but now I do. It's just He's amazing to me that Josh has obviously held on to this forever. Like, unlike that moron Sam Dykstra and his opinion, and you did yeah, not remember I d- it at I all. I don't remember sharing that, but like, the more Ben talked to me about it, I'm like, no, of course he's a dog. Like, I get it. We looked it up. They say it's a flipper. All of that's very good. He is kind of grayish, which is more seal-like than dog-like. Yeah, hey, I have sure. a gray dog. Well, I'm not saying they don't. I'm just exist. trying to poke the bear here. I know. I'm, I'm trying know. to poke the, the seal, the sea dog. I, I will just say this. His face, it has whiskers, which seals do, but they don't have that, like, dual palette that he does. He's got seal and, or uh, he's got the the gray and the white, right? Which is more right. dog like right. than seal like, I would say. He also has four legs, right? Right. They can say it's a flipper all they want, but and seals have kind of little legs at the end of their body, but they're not as four legged as Slugger himself is. So I, we have I would have kept it here. That's we all I'm controversy. saying. Yeah. And if we know anything about mascots, it's that they're always anatomically correct. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, I will say there is a statue of Slugger outside Hadlock Field in which he has very pronounced flippers. The mascot costume is not the same uh, as that statue. So I understand all of the controversy here, but we just wanted to, to promote um, the the knowledge now that we have all been clarified as to the existence of uh, of sluggers. Uh, uh, now I can't remember the term. What do they use for his his genus? Isn't that what they use for like uh, whatever an, an animal's classification is? His genus. He is a uh, he's a, a seal. species. A species, and then it's broken down. It's like species, well, I, I, I guess how far up the class than whatever. Yeah, I still right. remember that from middle school science. Yeah. King Philip came over for good spaghetti. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Wow, that was amazing. So, how far up the ladder is the split between seal and, and dog? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds... it, it, it's probably as high as phylum, right? Yeah, that sounds like a phylum thing. Yeah. 
Anyway, don't ever say we don't bring the intellectual conversation on this podcast. Uh, so let's dive in and talk uh, a little bit more about uh, some stuff from that New England road trip. This is actually the first time I've gotten a chance to talk to Ben since he hung out with your friend and mine, Josh Jackson. Uh, Josh and I discussed all of the food that you ate while you two were hanging out. I was very jealous of the lobster rolls and the fish and chips and everything else. Um, but you've got a story from Portland, Ben, about an 87-year-old Portland Sea Dogs usher up there at Hadlock Field in Maine, Jimmy Nolan, who just seems awesome. Tell us about Jimmy. Yeah, you know, this kind of story is in my wheelhouse. And um, yeah, Jimmy Nolan, uh, he's he's called the most popular man at the ballpark. He's 87 years old, you know, pretty little guy and, uh, you know, white hair, glasses, smile on his face. He's been working at the ballpark for 25 years. And um, he's just beloved at the ballpark because of one, like how dedicated he is to the job. He's like, you know, first one there among the game day staff, last to leave. You know, he told me he he gets tears every time uh, at the last game of the season when they play Old Lang Syne over the speakers. And he just already can't wait to be back at the ballpark and, you know, does the YMCA, does dances um, and, and just brings a lot of joy to the ballpark. And just to see someone, you know, at that age, you know, where a ballpark job, I think, adds so much to his quality of life and gives him, you know, so many interactions with people and so much uh, physical activity. I mean, I think it's just a great story of, you know, what these jobs can mean for people. And, you know, I interviewed him on the concourse of a ballpark. So like a lot of my interviews, the audio is not that great. I kind of wish we could share how, you know, he talked, you know, his name's Jimmy. He's 87 years old. He's a lifelong main guy. So, you know, his, I, I tried to explain in the story is, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we got to have Josh come on and enthusiastic, and but you know, that just, he's kind of got a, a thin reader voice, talks in really fast, short clips, you know, very short sentences and uh, just such a new England character in the way you hear him talk. But uh, hopefully, you know, in the story, you know, I, I kind of able to convey, you know, kind of who he is and what he's about, you know, in, in, in a relatively brief way, but just uh, to give, you know, a little background on another ballpark character, you know, it's, it's what I do most of the time. And transitioning from a ballpark character to a ballpark item, in a way, um, going back down to New Hampshire in your time there, you had this story also up on MILB.com right now about a flag from the USS Iwo Jima that flies in New Hampshire uh, at Fisher Cats games because of the groundskeeper. Uh, kind of take us through that one. Yeah, just another little uh, kind of off the beaten path slice of life minor league story from Manchester. Uh, their head groundskeeper is a man named Mike Georgiadis, you know, a Greek name. And um, it sounds like it might be hard to spell, but it's just Georgia, the state of Georgia, D-I-S, Mike Georgiadis. Um, the Fisher Cats are the fourth team for which he's been the head groundskeeper uh, following uh, in Helena, Montana, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, and Daytona Beach, Florida. And at all four of those minor league stops in which he's been the head groundskeeper, the ballpark flag that has been used during his tenure is from the USS Iwo Jima. And uh, that's because he was in the Navy prior to starting a groundskeeping career. And he was deployed four times in five years. And three of those deployments were on that ship. And uh, he told me that, you know, towards the end of his uh, time of duty on the ship, he put in a chit, not a word I'm familiar with. And I, you know, tried to look it up. And it seems like it's one of those Navy terms that has, you know, a lot of usages or things that can apply be applied to, but you put in a chit, which basically means a request for a special privilege. And uh, his chit was, Hey, can I please have the flag from this ship? And uh, you know, the, the captain was, I think moved by the request or just thought it was a pretty cool thing and gave it to him. 
And now everywhere he goes in minor league baseball, there's that flag. So not the thing, sort of thing you notice at a ballpark, but um, you know, just providing a little background on you know who, who populates these ballparks and the uh, special little quirks they bring into it, and um, just a sort of career path that people can take. Uh, Mike Georgiatis told me that he was in a uh, rainforest in Costa Rica as you know part of one of his deployments, and he was just surrounded by so many plants and lush, lush foliage. And that is really what got him thinking about, hey, what am I going to do when I'm out of the Navy? Like, I love plants. And then that got him thinking about, you know, gardening in some way. And then he was watching a baseball game on the Armed Forces Network and was like, that's it. <laughs> I want to be a groundskeeper. I mean, he really made it that simple. I mean, it obviously takes a lot of work then to get to a heads groundkeeper position, you know, through internships, uh, getting a turf management degree, uh, being in assistant roles. But uh, now he's a head groundskeeper and this is his fourth stop and he's always flying that same flag. So just a cool little slice of life story. That is really cool stuff, and uh, it is up on the site at MILB.com right now. Um, I feel as though we should also shout out a couple of the uh, listener emails that we got. Kevin Delaria, who has been a longtime listener of the show, uh, got in touch. He was going through Western North Carolina on a road trip and got in touch uh, for some suggestions as to where he should hit. He was planning on hitting games in Greensboro and Hickory. Um, And Ben, you uh, sent along your ballpark guys for those two spots. Uh, We also heard from the general manager of the Palm Beach Cardinals, Andrew Seymour, who is a longtime podcast listener, uh, and said that we can go down and hang out at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium because not only do the Palm Beach Cardinals play there, the Jupiter Hammerheads also play there, so we can just see baseball nonstop. Two ballpark or one ballpark, two teams. Uh, it seems very cool. Um, the next stop for Ben will be uh, through the Midwest. Ben, what are the details on your next trip coming up? Yeah, coming up, leaving on Wednesday, going to Beloit, uh, June 29th and June 30th. Beloit Skycarp, first time I've been there in nine years when they were the Snappers and played at Pullman Field. Now they're at ABC Supply Stadium, and they are the Skycarp. So uh, that'll be my 184th minor league ballpark, uh, and you know, obviously one I've not yet been to. So two nights there, looking forward to that. And then uh, one night in Appleton, where Wisconsin, home of the Timber Rattlers, uh, where I've not been uh, for again since 2013. Um, you know, a lot of character in that ballpark. Uh, a lot of people. I'm looking forward to get, getting caught up with, and uh, that'll be Friday, July 1st, and then for the first time ever to St. Paul, July 2nd and 3rd. St. Paul Saints. You know, we've talked about them quite a bit, but uh, new to the affiliated world in 2021 after a long stretch as an independent team, and you know, really looking forward to uh, yeah getting to Minnesota for the the first time at least on a professional basis. And it's not a state I've spent much time in, uh, generally speaking, either. Although after graduating college, I went on a road trip with my girlfriend at the time. And one of our stops, of course, at my bequest, was the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota, inspired by the Weird Al song. But I went there to Darwin, Minnesota, and saw the biggest ball of twine. And uh, now I'm going to Minnesota to see the St. Paul Saints. Are they comparable experiences? Probably not, but I'm looking for, I'd look forward to each one and uh, one happened, one hasn't. And, you know, time is funny that way. Just, are you going to go see the ball of twine again? You know, I did look it up and it's not that far. I can't remember how much, but I think given how uh, tight time generally is, I think to take a, you know, a couple hour drive in each direction to see it again, probably is not going to work out, but I need to look up the, the details again. Cause I remember being surprised like, Oh, it's not that far away. Um, yeah. Cause last time I went, I really wanted to get a souvenir, but there was just a twine ball in a gazebo and no one was around. And there was like a handwritten sign that was like, go to this house if you want souvenirs. And then no one was home. So <laughs> I did not, I did not get anything. 
that is a roadside Americana story. If I ever heard one, that's pretty amazing. Um, Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's biz on Instagram at the Ben's biz. And you can find all of his stuff at MILB.com, uh, including the two stories that we talked about for this week. And uh, thanks, man. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. And subscribe to the Ben's biz beat newsletter featuring everything we talked about and much, much more. And speaking of reader emails, uh, lots of, uh, you know, reader feedback in there as well. And uh, really enjoy getting that thing off the ground. But anyhow, yes. Thanks. Thanks, guys. It was great talking to you. And you guys uh, did our interview for this week because I was indisposed uh, with a different work assignment. So uh, tee it up for us. We're talking about a great tradition in San Jose, Excite Ballpark, where this past weekend, the San Jose Giants transformed into the San Jose Beer Batters. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. If you've been to any minor league baseball games at any point in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, you may be familiar with the concept of a beer batter where if an opposing, a member of the opposing team strikes out, uh, every fan in the stadium uh, gets discounted beer or something to that effect. The San Jose Giants are deeply committed to the beer batter. Uh, to the extent that they even have an on-field identity now that debuted this past weekend, uh, the San Jose Beer Batters. And uh, we want to get to the bottom of this and learn all about the beer batter in San Jose. So here to get to the bottom of it, uh, live and direct uh, from on vacation from an undisclosed location is uh, the San Jose Giants Vice President of Marketing, Matt Alonji. And I hope I got that name right. You nailed it. Thanks, Ben. I nailed it. Matt, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I am joined uh, to my right on this interview with uh, by Sam Dykstra, which I should have mentioned up front. A rambling introduction, but now we're going to stay very focused. So the beer batter, before we get into this new identity, uh, tell us about its history in San Jose, because I know of uh, all the ballparks that might do this. Um, the beer batter is a, a particularly, I don't quite want to say sacred, but very important tradition uh, at San Jose Giants games. Yeah, I think sacred is actually pretty accurate. Um, I actually had this conversation with our our longtime general manager who retired um, two years ago, Mark Wilson, um, who still has a, a big presence in, in the ballpark, not only in, in promotions that he brought, but also, you know, he's there two to three times a week. Um, so Mark brought it to us in the mid 1990s um, from he had seen it in the Northern League um, when he was a partner over there back in, you know, the the late 1980s. Um, But he kind of brought his own twist to it to to kind of form it into what the San Jose scene was becoming. Um, And I think before it was more of a, you know, when our batter did something good, um, you know, we're going to give our fans something special. Uh, And when he kind of brought it to San Jose, he flipped the script a little bit and decided, hey, let's put the pressure on the visiting team. Let's see if we can get our fans a little bit more engaged into the game. And we ended up selecting um, how it still stands since, you know, Mark brought it as we select one beer batter a game, which I'm sure most minor league teams do. 
Um, usually it's a new one every game, which gets a little more complicated when you have six game series these days. Um, but you know, you get one beer batter a game and if he strikes out before the seventh inning beer is two for one or half off in our ballpark, excite ballpark. And why do you think in San Jose in particular, obviously you've been doing it for a long time, but why do you think it resonates, uh, so much? Is it just part of the way you present it? Or is it just that, you know, people in San Jose really like beer? I think there's a, it's a two pronged approach here. One, the the last thing you said is people really like beer. Um, in San Jose, particularly our craft beer scene is, is phenomenal. Um, shout out to Tara Tallman, our VP of game day ops. We have over 40 different beers in the ballpark from, I don't know how many different craft beer locations is it's 10 plus plus of course, obviously our, our, your Bud Lights and Corona's and Miller's and all that stuff. Um, but the fact that we have that surplus of beer in the beer scene and, and partners like strike brewing and Camino brewing. Um, and the list goes on and on that are all within narrative fermentations. They're within three miles of our ballpark. Um, so I think the fact that that beer scene is as high as it is definitely complements the success that we see. Um, at the same time though, I, I think it is just something that our, our season ticket holders really get into. Um, Shout out to our, our section G and section F season ticket holders that sit above the visitors dugout, which isn't the most popular location for people to pick when they're choosing their seats. Um, but you know, there's a group of five or six led by, uh, led by Ben for sure that come to 90% of our games and are chanting beer, beer, beer. Every time the guy comes up, um, I'm sure if you asked any visiting ball visiting player that comes to our ballpark, the, the line who's on deck, it's their beer batter will ring through their ears for years to come. Um, and, and I think it's just what, what we've done on the field with that promotion is special because minor league baseball, as, as we all know, and you two know the best as well is it's, it's about as much as what happens off the field as what happens on the field. However, for those two to three minutes that the beer batter is up to bat at our ballpark, our fans are locked in to that play to parents. It is kids, adults, um, middle-aged, whatever you want it to say, everybody is paying attention. And, and of course, the, the modern technology we have now with the video board and, and different things that we can do to kind of poke fun at it, you know, complements it. Um, but really, really proud of, of how this has come along from just being, a, you know, quite frankly, a food and beverage promotion to a full ballpark um, rebrand at this point. Yeah, and, and let's go from what happens in the stadium with that excitement, with that chanting of who's on deck, to turning it into an identity. What was the brainstorming sessions like in the offseason leading up to this? Because you guys becoming the beer batters, you're the team that are the beer batters, but you're usually rooting against the beer batters. I'm sure there's like a whole clash going on there. Just take us through what those sessions were like when you guys were trying to make that transition from in-stadium event to on-field promotion. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was uh, it was one of our our big brainstorming projects of you know it, really unfortunate the pandemic season that got canceled. Um, you know, all of us were trying to be as creative as possible, stay as busy as possible. Um, and you know, shout out to minor league baseball for the the Copa Identity program that they brought to so many teams now that I think it's over ninety plus whatever it may be. It's you know having those alternate identities identities has really become. Um, a staple in, in all of minor league baseball and, and minor league teams. And I don't know the numbers, but I know a lot of people have, have more than one. And for us, 
Um, I know Ben has been out to the ballpark and saw San Jose churros and what Paul has done for us in San Jose in terms of that identity. Um, this beer batter was, it's not a, it's, it's not tied. Churros is still, you know, it's definitely our, our most popular, um, rebrand if you will, but the beer batter had something that was untapped. It had potential that, that we knew we could kind of dig deeper in. Um, and shout out to our, our senior director of merchandise, Sierra Hanley, uh, and Jason Klein from Brandios that listened to me ramble on the phone with 13, 15 different, uh, iterations of this, of this, um, logo, but we finally got one that we thought hit with the backwards K. Um, obviously you can see the logo. It, it's, uh, it's a bat with beer foam coming out of it and it is the pitcher. So that was kind of the way that we got it to, to spin so that it's still evident that, you know, we're the pitcher in this situation. We are trying to strike out the opposing team. Um, and it really all came together during that year off, if you will. Um, and we launched it in 2021, um, with just merchandise just to kind of get our feet in the water and, and see how it would be taken by the crowds and, and what it was. And, man, the hats went crazy. Um, we were, we did a pre-sale, a pre-sale of the hats that sold out within, you know, a couple of weeks, whatever it may be. And we were, we were ordering and off and running, um, and, and shirts were coming later. And then, you know, as you mentioned, 2022, we just debuted it last weekend on the field, um, with a pretty, uh, in your face Jersey. If, if I do say so myself, it's, you know, the San Jose Giants look is, is very classic. It's very San Francisco Giants-esque, obviously just the SJ that, that is similar to what SF wears. Um, and this one, we, uh, we really went kind of against uh, our, our norm and, um, I'm glad we did. It was, uh, we definitely came out with a bang. Yeah. And, and just to describe that Jersey, cause I have it up here. It, it basically looks like a full beer with suds on the top. So it's like white shoulders going down the arms, but the rest of it is beer with, you can kind of see suds in there as well. It says beer batters across the front. You mentioned, reaching out to Brandy O's, talking to them about the logo. And, you know, like you mentioned, you're wearing the logo right now uh, with the backwards K. I, I specifically want to ask about the backwards K and, and why you went with the strikeout looking instead of the strikeout swinging. Is that just because K is nowhere in San Jose Giants at all? You don't want to be confused with another team or, or what, what's the decision with the backwards K? Uh, I think it's, it's just a little more, uh, a little more punch, if you will, when you strike out looking from our side of things. Um, I don't think it, it matters in too much in terms of the people that just want the, the, the beer, but um, you get a little extra, a little extra excitement in the ballpark when it's that strike three looking and the umpire rings them up. Um, so I think that was the, the first notion. We obviously, when you're going through these different um, iterations of, of logos and artworks and what it is, we saw it both ways. Um, so don't get me wrong. I personally thought it looked better with the backwards K. So there's, there's definitely an artistic piece to it just to see, you know, which one we prefer. Um, but there definitely is a little bit of a, a hint of in your face with the, with the backwards K strikeout looking. Yeah. And these jerseys resembling a, you know, sudsy mug of beer, you know, makes sense because these players were all draft picks. Not all of them. That's nice. Wow. Did Some of them were in before. Do you come up, do you come up with or undrafted spot? Yeah, and there's Sam to just pour some cold well, you, water you on. You had it. that one on tap for about five minutes. Oh, so. okay. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. We can do this. If all you day. guys want, I can I can give you our social media manager's email. We're looking for clever uh, clever social media captions by the day. At this point, we're running out. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're starting our own uh, consulting firm, so please pass our information. Along. Perfect. Uh, perfect. Twitter I appreciate that. <laughs> um, 
But, you know, I, I really do. Um, it sounds like I say this to everybody, but you know, I really do think the San Jose is a really special place to see a game. I've only been there once, but I had a great time. Uh, you know, the beer batter tradition. Uh, you mentioned churros and I was it was great for me to be able to meet uh, Paul uh, Super Churros man. Uh, Serda, I believe, is his last name. I hope I got that right. That's the one. Yeah, you did. And um, another thing, since we're talking about San Jose traditions, just to change the topic a little bit, you have one of the most unique between inning competitions I've ever seen as well in uh, Smash for Cash. So uh, since we have you on the line, if you could explain uh, a little bit about Smash for Cash. I am uh, I am very sorry to say that Smash for Cash has been retired. Oh, uh, wow. Oh, no. The, the pitch clock is just, it's just, we can't wheel out a truck or wheel out. We drove it out, but drive out a truck from 1940, whatever it may, it may be. But that being said, um, it's a great tradition. We're, we're doing it on a couple special weekends this year. Um, I mentioned Mark Wilson, our RGM who retired. He, he brought that uh, promotion as well. Um, and we're, we're honoring him in, in July on a retirement day. We will bring Smash for Cash back out that day. Um, but yeah, it is, it is kind of what you think it may be when, with the tone smash for cash, we bring out an old truck from right field. You can hear it from three blocks away. It's making so much noise. Um, you park it in, in foul territory. Um, and we'd bring out uh, a couple of players, three players, um, each accompanied by a fan. Um, they'd stand about 20 yards away from the truck and, uh, get three chances to, to knock out the headlights in the truck. Um, and if you do before the, the promotion starts, we would pick out a uh, dollars from the hat to see how much the player was playing, was uh, playing for. And uh, the, the fan and the player would go home happy. If you, if you smash those, uh, those lights out um, quite literally smashing glass on a baseball field. So it's another reason why it probably had to get retired just because of all the new regulations and safety and what we can do. Um, but it's uh, it's sorely missed. However, the memories uh, will last. <laughs> Well, speaking of some of this stuff between the beer batter smash for cash and, you know, the beer batter identity on its own, the churro identity, you were talking before, I just want to return to this, of the idea of the San Jose Giants, your general look, your regular look is essentially a carbon copy of the San Francisco Giants, just with one word changed in there, basically in a few letters. Um, how, how do you kind of view that being such a classic minor league team? You guys don't have kind of a weird name, but do you feel like that allows you guys more creative freedom to do some of these more other identity stuff because the baseline is the parent club? Uh, I do. I, I'm, I'm really proud of the, the different options we have in our merchandise look in, in our field, both on field and just for fans. Um, I think there's a little bit of something for everyone um, last season, our plain black and white SJ hat was one of the top 10 sellers of all of minor league baseball. Um, I personally, I don't have it myself. Um, <laughs> is it a clean, good look? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, it's literally a black and white SJ hat though. It's, it's nothing special. Um, but I think that resonates with, with a lot of the baseball fans, just because, um, like you mentioned the, the, the relationship with the San Francisco Giants, the proximity to San Francisco is, you know, we're 40 miles south of, of San Francisco. Um, all of that stuff, it, it really helps drive this San Jose Giants brand. And especially when San Francisco's had the success that they've had in the last 10 years. Um, well, now 12 years with the three world championships and 107 wins last year. Um, the diehard baseball fan is always going to like our, our classic look. That being said, you know, we, 
every minor league team gets the families and the kids out to the ballpark that really just want to have some fun, eat a dog, have a beer, play in the fun zone. Um, and that's where these alternate identities really, really come to life. Uh, when you see, you know, my nephew's upstairs right now wearing a, a little churros hat, um, you see a, a family come in wearing churros gear, but then the dad's in an, S, in an SJ hat. I think it just, it really exemplifies how we can touch just about anybody that's interested in coming to a ballpark. We got something for everyone. And, um, and yeah, I, I do think when we get a little weird, which we did with the beer batter jerseys, um, people get a little surprised. Uh, and I think it, it, it's, it worries you as a, as a person that's kind of putting this out into the world. Um, but to see, to see the success that we've had with that Jersey, um, was, was really, really cool. And it's definitely something we'll continue, um, moving forward here as, as we go through different jerseys and, and brand reiterations of the beer batter, just like we've done with the churros. Yeah. The San Jose giants play, I still want to call it municipal stadium, but it's uh, excite ballpark. I know. <laughs> um, one of the just absolute, you know, classic ballparks, uh, in minor league baseball, especially on the West coast. And if you haven't been out to see a game there, it really is highly recommended. Um, yeah, we talked about how, you know, you, you embrace the weird on occasion, such as with the beer batters. Is there, uh, anything else, uh, you know, later this season or down the line, uh, that you're looking forward to that kind of pushes the envelope in these sort of directions? I think that, I mean, we have all of our, our, we do one churros night a year, uh, or sorry, one churros night a month, I should say. So six total. So each time those, uh, those are coming on weekends. We're, we're pretty excited for those, um, putting a couple of our prospects that we had on in our last year's championship team, um, bobbleheads out into the world in churros jerseys, Luis Matos, uh, Marco Luciano, Kyle Harrison names that giants fans. And at this point, their success probably with most baseball fans is, is known, um, so really looking forward to those. Um, and then just, you know, the beer batter is while well, we only did it for one weekend in terms of the on-field look, you know, the beer batter is 66 games at, at excite ballpark and it's, it's not going anywhere. So looking forward to seeing how each different team, um, visiting team kind of, uh, it resonates with them. You know, you, you can see with some players when they're selected, the beer batter, it's they're unfazed, they're up there doing their normal approach, but you know, these are, in low a baseball, we're getting 19 to 21 year olds. So you can kind of see when, when they're shaking a little bit and it's an interesting perspective to see, uh, how our, how our pitching staff responds to it as well. Um, I was talking to Dan Runzler, our, our San Jose pitching coach, former San Francisco giant, uh, and San Jose giant. And he was talking about, he's a big beer batter fan. Where's the, where's the shirts pregame and everything. He was talking about how uh, he gave up five to seven, five, seven runs, whatever it may be in an outing, but he struck out the beer batter twice. So he went home happy that night. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just stuff like that. That kind of, you know, it really appreciates uh, the hard work that you put into these types of promotions and, and knowing that it, it resonates and it's appreciated by not only our fans, but the on-field staff and, and the visiting team as well that get involved in it. Um, it's a, uh, it's a really cool thing to see. There you have it. Uh, low A batters, but perhaps not a low A BV. No. <laughs> Matt Alonji, Vice President of Marketing for the San Jose Giants. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show before the show podcast and uh, telling us all about the beer batters and, and many other things. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me on and reaching out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Huge thanks to the San Jose Giants for joining the show this week. And we are uh, off to three strikes on this uh, nearly end of the first half edition of the show before the show. Bandit. He's got a little itch. I don't know if you can hear his collar jingling. Uh, but anyway, let's uh, let's dive in. We are uh, all witnesses now to the height and the impressive baseball ability that is Pirates shortstop O'Neill Cruz, who recently uh, reached the big leagues last week, uh, clocked the hardest throw of the season for, I believe, any infielder on his first day up at the big league level here in 2022, 96.7 miles per hour to throw out Wilson Contreras uh, of the Chicago Cubs at first on a grounder that looked fairly routine on the infield. And then O'Neill Cruz is like, yeah, watch this and just fired an absolute uh, satellite over to first. Um, the uh, start of a career for somebody like O'Neill Cruz, obviously so long anticipated for Pirates fans uh, and for baseball fans. Now you're obviously seeing a shortstop who is very different from what you're used to seeing. O'Neill Cruz, I believe, six foot seven. Is that right, Sam? Yes, that is correct. So a, a very different looking type of prospect playing that position. Is there anybody who, in your mind, could kind of pull off that next big jump uh, and immediately arrive with such a splash. Cruz said on his first day, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of balls hit very hard and very far. He obviously made that play in the infield. He brings a lot of juice, uh, and we have seen prospect promotions like that in uh, in recent weeks and months and seasons, but who is kind of that next one in line? Well, yeah, the way I, I, I kind of thought of this question isn't so much of, like, who's going to get called up next. It's more of, like, who is going to be the next guy who automatically shows up and wows us with what he can do in terms of stack cast, in terms of size. I mean, there's multiple ways we could take who is the next O'Neill Cruz. If we're looking at just size, Ellie De La Cruz in the red system is listed at six foot five, um, plays both third base, shortstop. I've seen some questions of like, should he play center field? He's a plus runner. He can do all of these things really well as a guy who, you know, is two inches shorter than O'Neill Cruz, but it's still very big to be playing these premium positions. He's a little bit further away. He's only 20 years old right now. He's at high A Dayton, but having a very strong season, he's the number 65 overall prospect according to MLB pipeline right now. Um, so if you're looking at somebody who's going to show up and just shock based off how he looks, De La Cruz could be that guy. But if we're talking about somebody who's going to show up and immediately start putting up stack cast numbers, that makes us think this guy is one of the best in baseball period at what he does. Uh, I think we might have to go towards pitching in that direction and, and go towards a Grayson Rodriguez or go, go towards a Daniel Espino. Uh, Espino, especially, we had this a couple of weeks back with Edward Cabrera, uh, who threw a changeup at 93 miles an hour. And everybody's like, what the heck is that? Um, Cabrera's always been a hard thrower. We knew that last year. He has seen the major before, technically still a prospect. Um, but through that type of changeup, Daniel Espino is throwing sliders in that same range. Sliders. These are not like two-seam fastballs or fastballs of any measure. He's throwing technically breaking pitches in the low 90s. That was before he got hurt. He's currently out with a knee injury. I'm still waiting for him to come back because 
he was generating the most buzz of anybody, I think, coming out of the spring. We made a huge jump on him in the top 100. If he was healthy, he might be in the consideration for top five overall. We just haven't seen him at AA uh, to start the year. But I think if and when Daniel Espino makes his debut in Cleveland, he's going to be putting up some of these stat cast numbers between velocity, between movement, um, between swing and miss stuff. It's, it, it could really pop off. We just need to see it, and that's why he's not you know, number one overall prospect right now. Uh, but I think doing what O'Neill Chris is doing on the mound is uh, Espino has that in him. I got to get faster on the unmute button. Um, strike two this week, as I noted, we're coming to the end of the first half of the minor league season. We were talking about the actual uh, day or date, um, which it may be today for high A and low A. Sam, you were saying a minute ago, um, and then triple A and double A coming up uh, a little bit later on in the week. But we have such a good sample size now to evaluate hitters and pitchers. So for our second strike this week, who's your first half hitting prospect of the year? Yeah, so this one we're going to, consider the pool to be anybody who is a ranked prospect according to MLB pipeline will include any top 30 prospect. We're going to do that here in the next strike as well. Um, so when you open up the pool to that big a group, uh, you know, we don't have to just look at top 100 prospects, although Corbin Carroll is having a great season. Jordan Walker is having a great season. Um, the Francisco Alvarez is having a really solid year, but if we open it up to anybody who's ranked right now, I'm going to select Estuary Ruiz, who is somebody I talked about last week when I made my MILB.TV pick, uh, talking about El Paso and what he's been able to do since joining the AAA level. As of Thursday, Estuary Ruiz leads all of minor league baseball or full season minor leaguers with a 352 average. Um, he is third with a 1.102 OPS. Uh, he is second with a 480 on base percentage. And I think critically, uh, to his what makes him so good he leads all of baseball not just minor leagues all of baseball with 48 stolen bases between double a san antonio and triple a el paso uh Esri ruiz was a ranked prospect in the padre system before this season uh but the swing and miss just became such a big issue for him he was really expanding the zone wasn't doing well at making an ample amount of contact to you know make people comfortable with ranking him again. And that, that script has switched this year. He is making much more sound swing decisions. Um, that's allowed the average to go up by reaching base more often. Like I said, with at that 480 clip, which is just insane. That's helped him play into his plus plus speed and start stealing. You know, he's going to be at 50 stolen bases here very quickly. Um, there are some other candidates here, Jackson Churio, uh, of the Milwaukee Brewer system is, is having a really special year. He's batting 347 right now. Moises Gomez, another, I won't say a breakout prospect because he, we've known about him before. He currently leads all of minor league baseball in OPS at 1.128. Uh, he's also tied it for the home run lead at 22 with two other guys. We've talked about him in the past. But I think Ruiz, the way he's been able to make changes has been really special. Uh, we snuck him on to the top 30 because of this breakout. He's going to make another huge leap whenever we do our midseason update. I don't know if he's going to be in top 100 territory just because this has happened so fast. And, and is it going to hold? And he has a history of other problems that could all tail off eventually. But it's a, it's been a special first half for sure for Esther Ruiz. And if I was going to name an MVP at this halfway point, uh, out of all the ranked prospects we have, he would he would be on the top of the list. 
just doing it now for the drama of not finding the <laughs> mute button. No, I'm kidding. Um, let's do the flip side of that then. The uh, pitching prospect. We've seen a lot of really impressive pitching starts to this season and uh, a lot of guys who have stood out. Your pitching prospect for the first half. My uh, Yeah, same same deal. Um, we're just going to go off who, who is a ranked pitching prospect uh, coming into the, you know, as things stand right now. Uh, I'm going to go with Ricky Tiedemann, somebody we've talked about a little bit on this show. Uh, left-handed pitching prospect in the Toronto Blue Jays system, jumped into the top 100. Uh, Keegan Matheson, who does our Blue Jays top 30 coming into the year, great Blue Jays beat writer for MLB.com, was telling me in the spring, like, hey, there's a lot of noise around Ricky Tiedemann right now. Uh, they are super excited for what he, what he could do. You know, the way his velocity was popping, he was a third round pick last year, 91st overall. So he could have been picked anywhere ahead of that. Uh, the fact that the slider or the fastball velocity has ticked up has been really helpful for him in the way he's pitched at both single a Dunedin and now high a Vancouver, uh, as things stand here on Thursday, he has the lowest average against among full season qualifiers at 130. Uh, he has the lowest whip among full season qualifiers at 0.76. Uh, his other numbers are, are just as stellar, if not necessarily leading minor league baseball, but he's got a 1.17 ERA through 11 starts. He struck out 84 batters in 53 and two thirds innings. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's anything in here that's necessarily plus plus to make this happen. I think this is a really good arm dominating the lower levels. Uh, but again, for being a third round pick, we are talking about Ricky Tiedemann a lot more than you typically do less than a year into his professional career. Uh, if this velocity can hold as he continues to add innings, you know, he's at 53 and two thirds right now. Uh, he's going to be pushing 90, hundred by the end of the year. How's the Vila going to hold up then? We'll have to wait and see. Do they give him another challenge at double A New Hampshire? We'll have to wait and see on that as well. Uh, but Ricky Tiedemann has been super exciting and it's not just the stuff that's that's ticked up this year it's the results to back it up and um yeah the the blue jays you know after having years of like nate pearson disappointing and not being healthy they have another really good pitching prospect here in tiedemann and i'm excited to see where he can take things here in the second half and that is three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show it's a very good selection ricky tiedemann i got to write a piece on him earlier this year um i think that was back beginning of may i want to say and it was like man this dude is legit uh, so that's another really fun one for the Blue Jays to have because, you know, the Blue Jays have been short on in recent years. Exciting prospects. <laughs> uh, it's pretty cool for Jays fans. Uh, so that wraps up three strikes. Josh Jackson swings by the show for Ghosts of the Miners, and then we're back to wrap it up on the other side. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair one really had its day in the sun. The others are from the shadowy realm of fiction. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Suffolk Nuts. B. The Lake Charles Snappers. C. The Harlan Eggbeaters. If you guessed A. The Suffolk Nuts, 
you cracked it. Representing the Peanut City, aka the peanut capital of the world, aka the world's largest peanut market, where Planters Peanuts established its headquarters in 1912, the Nuts played in the Virginia League in 1919 and 1920. Their moniker was a testament to their saltiness in more ways than one. Nuts was a reaction, not allergic, to the name of a pre-existing Virginia League club and former Ghost of the Miners honoree, the Petersburg Goobers. But in 1919, the Goobers were so good, it would have been hard for the Nuts to be butter. Er, better. Petersburg went 62-47 and 47 to best even the Richmond Colts, who got a historically good season from future Hall of Famer Chief Bender. And no amount of grinding could make the Nuts play smoother than that. In fact, the Nuts were quite brittle, playing like a team spread thin. Although they got a no-hitter from Southpaw William Pearson on June 15, and had consistent leadership and occasional clutch hitting from Philadelphia Athletics great Rube Oldring, Suffolk nonetheless finished 12 games behind the Goobers, looking down upon only the sunken Newport News shipbuilders. Well, even the shipbuilders showed a tiny bit of buoyancy in 1920, the nuts were crushed again. Once more, finishing last place but one, ahead of just the Wilson Bugs, who were crushed even flatter. The Suffolk shortcomings likely drove nobody nuts more so than righty Charles Eckert, who was in the sophomore season of a 17-year pro career and posted a 1.96 ERA, but was roasted with 20 losses for the nuts for the second consecutive year. Eckert went on to the Norfolk Club the next year, and Suffolk, feeling assaulted enough after two seasons, became the Wildcats for 19 and 21. And that's how the Nuts were shelled out of the Virginia League. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams gave fans a fright in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Youngstown Gremlins. B. The Brainerd Zombies. C. The Franklin Frankensteins. Want to know the answer? Check under the bed. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is opening a barber shop, and I don't think he's going to be able to cut it. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent across minor league baseball. Sam, give us a lowdown. What are you watching this week? Yeah, so this week uh, I have my eye on Montgomery at Pensacola. Uh, One big reason for that is Ray's infield prospect. One of my favorites, uh, Curtis Mead. Mead had a breakout breakout season last year. He carried that over to the Arizona Fall League. Um, Was a big fan of his coming into the year. Uh, one thing he's starting to show now is increased power. Uh, I remember talking to Rays officials last year, and they said, listen, it's doubles power now. We think it's going to turn into home run power eventually. And it's like, okay, it, I can kind of see it. One thing I love about Curtis Mead is just how simple his setup is at the plate. He just stands tall up in there, covers the plate really well, makes good swing decisions, um, seems to hit everything. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that power is coming. Well, it's come this month. I got to say that. Uh through 18 games in June, he is slugging 667. 
He's got an OPS of 1.084. He has six home runs in those 18 games. Uh, 10 of his 24 hits have gone for extra bases. Uh, he struck out 18 times, walked seven. Um, so it's a pretty strong line overall. Uh, this is the second month of the year. He also that he slugged at least 600. He also did that in April, uh, but he had three homers in that month. Now he has six and the month is, isn't even over yet. Um, so him going to Pensacola is going to be big because it could set up a matchup with Marlins pitching prospect, Yuri Perez, uh, who is always special and always has a chance to dominate up, up there, despite only being 19 years old. Uh, he got shellacked a little bit this week going up against Bloxy. I know he gave up a homer to fellow top 100 prospect, Joey Weimer. But Yuri Perez is always going to be must-watch just because he is so young that Marlins have been so aggressive with him and his pitches play so well uh, despite getting that aggressive assignment. So Yuri Perez versus Curtis Mead should be a special matchup there in the Southern League. Tyler, what do you got your eye on? I'm going to the International League and the uh, Norfolk Tides, who are on the road this weekend at Lehigh Valley. They'll be home next week against the Gwinnett Stripers. Um, I'm not picking it because of this, but if you do tune in on Tuesday, there's a chance that you may see Meredith from the office because she's going to be in attendance at Harbor Park on Tuesday. Um, but the the Tides have had so much fun talent go through Norfolk this year, um, you know, from Adley Rutschman to uh, Grayson Rodriguez, obviously the injury issue there, um, D.L. Hall. But two guys who I want to mention, Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg, who have been fantastic um, so far this season. Gunnar Henderson uh, got up to AAA in not necessarily the beginning of June, but kind of the end of the first week of June. He uh, arrived on June 8th. Uh, he's got an OPS over 900. He's been outstanding there. Uh, but Jordan Westberg, who was just promoted uh, in the middle of the month, has been ridiculous to start his AAA stay, um, kicking things off with uh, a series that got him selected to our Pipeline Prospect Team of the Week. Uh, he's only gone hitless one time in his 12 games at AAA so far, and he's got multiple hits in already seven of his 12 games at AAA. He's got a 365 average and an 1169 OPS. So tons of talent um, throughout that uh, that Baltimore system. And a lot of it right now is at AAA Norfolk. So you can tune in there. And uh, before we get out of here, we, uh, we got to tell you about the uh, best stuff from the MILB store. Calling all MILB fans, MILBstore.com is your one-stop shop for minor league team official gear. Whether you're searching for the perfect fitted cap, I don't know who that would be, who likes buying those, uh, the latest on-field theme night jersey, or the perfect gift for a family member, you can browse over 500 different logos and designs from your favorite MILB teams. Head on over to MILBstore.com today and subscribe to the newsletter to receive 10% off your first purchase. MILB Store, we have your fun in store. And that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. We'll be back uh, for our final episode of June coming up next week as the minor league season continues to roll along. For Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you then.